In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We rather love words in this church. We like to play with words here. I pray that we love the word of God above all. And that glorious collect has uh, reminded us of the place of the word of God in the heart of the believer. And that various glorious hymn, surely the greatest hymn we have in the repertoire, has reminded us of the power of the word of God, the word spoken, the word written, the word proclaimed. One little word, the word, the word, as Luther says, is enough to silence the prince of darkness forever. Well, we have one word today. That word is like. Like as in a verb, I like you. Like as in an adjective, I am of like mind. Like as a noun, the like of which we have never known. Like as a conjunction, I felt like I was sinking. Finally, like as a preposition, just like that. Finish tormenting this. Like as something you do, like as something you are, doing and being. The word like is relational. It speaks of the power of attraction, but it reminds us that like can attract or repel. You need not like what is like you. Indeed, you may very much dislike what is most like you. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, the Pharisee says. And the Pharisee, the example Jesus most likes to use when he is pointing out what he most dislikes and saying, don't be like this. Why not? The Pharisees are the brightest and the best after all. They're what, in our heart, so many of us aspire to be, especially in evangelicalism. Well, the word will get us through this. Why Jesus then so hard on the Pharisee? Because the Pharisee is like what he likes to imagine he is not. We like to say that it's good to know what you know, But it's also very good to know what you don't know. This is not the Pharisee's gift. It's not so much his theological disposition that's a fault. It's his basic grasp on reality. He is dishonest. Dishonest with himself. And Jesus really doesn't like that. And he doesn't know it. And Jesus, I think at times with the Pharisees, is almost ready to let them go. When you're dishonest with yourself and you don't know it, it's a very dangerous combination. How dangerous? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This business of humility and exaltation Again, not just a matter of pastoral or spiritual style. It's a matter of life and death, of scorpions and eggs, not apples and oranges. 
Now, the things the Pharisee most dislikes about the tax collector are, in fact, the things he most dislikes about himself. But is it honest enough to stay? These are things he has in common. How do I know that? That's just the law of life. That the thing that bothers you, irritates you most about the person who's driving you crazy with that one irritating trait is the one thing in yourself that you don't like. Never fails. Never fails to be true. You get hooked if you like. Now, there's hope. If you acknowledge that what hooks you in the person you don't like is something you have in common, if you could get to like that person, things that could bring you together, then you're on your way to some learning, to some knowledge, to some radical transformation. But there has to be some basic humility brought into the world first, your world, and that usually means humiliation. Hard to humiliate yourself, much easier to be humiliated. And the world and God have a way of conspiring to make that happen for us. (laughs) And we should say thanks when it does. Just a word to remind me of the next time it happens. Perhaps the Pharisee cannot admit to himself that he has those things in common. The fact that he sees them in somebody else so clearly should help him, but does not help him to see them in himself. And honesty is the prerequisite for change. The Pharisee will not in any way be brought nearer to the likeness of God by using the failings of his others as his stepping stones to success if he denies them in himself For all the things which he boasts, living by the law, doing exactly what he's being told, being perfect in obedience, all of this will not change him, has not, never will. And the fact that the tax collector apparently lacks all these practiced virtues will not be held against that tax collector in the final analysis when all is weighed in the scales. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified not the other, justified, not by the law, but put in right relationship with God by his heart, his honest, humble, and broken heart. The law is only a means, never an end, never an end. Being in relationship with God in a loving, open, vulnerable relationship with God is the end. God made this planet and all who inhabit it so that he could have something other than himself that he might relate to. Something and someone. Someone like him? Someone to like? No, someone to love and to love him back. Someone in his likeness. But staying in his likeness It's a tricky path for a people for whom God has given enough freedom just to get themselves into some pretty deep trouble. And when we want to be just like God, sometimes with every fiber of our being, and try to do so in our own power, in our own strength, as the hymn reminded us, we fail. We might look like him on the outside, Inside, like what's inside a whitewashed tomb. The key to all of this is us accepting our otherness 
from God and the otherness of one another. Now, there's more to this. How we relate in otherness to one another is also crucial. Martin Buber in I and Thou, mandatory in most seminaries, certainly mandatory in ours, writes, this is dense and wonderful stuff, very concentrated. The attitude of man is twofold in accordance with the twofold nature of the primary words which he speaks. This is word in a different sense than word. The one primary word is the combination I, thou. I do, I too. The thou in the familiar sense of the second person, which we have lost. The other primary word is the combination I, it. Third person. Hence, the I of man is also twofold. For the I of the primary word I, thou, is a different I from that of the primary word I, it. The relationships in which we stand over against that which is other change us. They don't just shape how we relate to the other. We can relate objectively, I, it, one to the other, subject to object, knowing subject to the thing known, which is passive. Or we can relate, not subjectively, that's something else, but intersubjectively, subject to subject, knower to knower, active to active, interactive. Where the Pharisee went wrong was his way of knowing the tax collector, as I, it. He doesn't even really see the tax collector as human, some other species that has crawled in there to the wailing wall that doesn't even belong there. Now, part of what is shaping this relationship or lack of it, part of the I, it is something we call the persona or the mask. The Pharisee wore the mask, the bright, hard persona of perfect righteousness that he had fashioned with the help of those around him. As long as he played his part perfectly, the mask and the role was his. Our culture gives us a mask, an ideal person that we want to be, and so do they. Try being a pastor to know what it is to be loaded with a persona, whether you want it or not. It's the basis of our relationship. It doesn't help anything, but it's part of our any interaction we have. The mask is necessary, but you have to know when to take it off. And to know when to take it off, you have to be able to take it off and find something underneath. Easier said than done. The mask and the role was his. But everything he was not, the tax collector was. The tax collector, if you like, is the shadow. Everything that mask isn't. Everything not bright, not good, not beautiful is the shadow. The outcast, totally other, I, it. Yet not, for the shadow is deeper and darker, the harder and brighter the light. 
and yet both belong together. You cannot have one without the other. You look into the Pharisee's mask, and you will know that the tax collector is close by. Where the Pharisee went wrong was his way of knowing, and not knowing that he was knowing it in this way. Not knowing that he wore this persona, identifying with it, and not seeing that the task of knowing the shadow, the outcast, the alien, the everything that is him, that he thinks is not him, that he's putting on the tax collector, is critical to his salvation. As someone said, the shadow casts also a very deep pit. You're better to step into it slowly than fall into it or be pushed into it backwards. How do we relate, in other words, to that which is other than ourselves, which we see projected on the tax collectors in our life? And you can name the tax collector in your world. Some group of people that's just different enough from the way we look, the way we behave, what our values seem to be, to take all the evil in the world and wear it. Plenty of choices today. Wonderful time to live. We have so many possibilities of seeing that at work. Can't work, though, and it doesn't work. How do we relate to that which is other than ourselves, to that which stands over against us, to that which seems to us in its strangeness utterly alien? And yet is for us the one thing we have to claim, name as ours, get to know, and even befriend, integrate into our being. Or at least see within that shadow that which God has placed for us and that which God means to be weeded out. That's another sermon. So, how do we change The things we project on others, the things within ourselves from which we ourselves are estranged, the things we don't like about ourselves because they're not like what we like about those who are like us, the things we don't want anyone else to see or to know, are there things we would not want the world to see or know about us? Plenty for me. What if they were suddenly there? For the whole world to see. You know what's interesting about this? Is how often people who have made their way to the top of the ladder. Great prestige, great wealth, great power. Are suddenly toppled by some scandal. And for them life begins at that point. They're broken, they're humiliated. And the day after for the first time in their life. They're suddenly happy. They can be who they really are for better sometimes than the best they thought they were representing. They had to be humbled to be brought low. And God will do it to us if we don't do it to ourselves. He works through our subconscious to make that come as a sign of his love. So let's try to do it cooperatively. Now what difference Does all this make all the difference in the world if the persona we carry, the person we want to be or obliged to be, 
to be seen to be by the world and the person that God is calling us to be are not the same. And they're usually not. They can be close or they can be wildly out of sync. Our worry is to be the man or woman of God's choosing. And the world gets in the way. We spend our lives making this identity with the cooperation of all the great institutions of our culture. I'm not talking about the evil in this world that we're fighting. I'm talking about everything good in this world that we're fighting. And that's our battle. Because it's not good enough for God. We spend our lives manufacturing this identity in cooperation or competition with the world, with the others in the world who must, by their acquiescence, grant us our personhood or the right to be the person we claim to be. The work of a lifetime, we can surrender that right in a moment. Sometimes it all comes out at funerals. So the tax collector did all this when he sold out. He just gave it up. He said, I will be the most reviled person in this community, and I won't pretend to be anything else. Does that mean he stepped outside of the reach of God? Not at all. It means he has become the kind of person that Jesus wants to find. Because he needs to be changed more than anybody else? No, because he's already on the road to change. And Jesus knows that something can happen here. So must the Pharisee remind him whenever their paths cross? For if the Pharisee pays the tax collector the honor of regarding him as a human being, this is important, if he even addresses that tax collector as a person, he will take on the same shame that that person carries with him, the loss of that which he has sought to build up. Honor and shame, the currency of all transactions in that society. In our world, money trumps everything. All else is subsumed, overlooked, and forgotten, if not outright forgiven. In Jesus' day, honor was bought in different ways. But if that world and our world are much the same in that honor is found somewhere, Jesus' day is still to come, the day in which all those distinctions of class of standing, of every kind, are erased, and honor and shame interchanged, and the world we know turned upside down. Every time Jesus talks about his world, it's not just like a 10% fine-tuning. You've been pretty good in this world. You're going to do great in the world to come. No, he talks about everything being turned upside down. Do not the tears of the widow run down her cheek as she cries out against him who has caused them to fall. He whose service is pleasing to the Lord will be accepted and his prayer will reach to the clouds. What is that service? Who is he who is pleasing? The prayer of the humble pierces the clouds and he will not be consoled until it reaches the Lord. The day is coming, it has already coming in Jesus, when all that we strive to build up here will be cast down, and the downcast, those the world never held in high regard, will wind up on the top.
the judgment that the survivors of this world will not survive, in which the winners are the losers after all, and the losers are the winners. Something to keep in mind when we are looking down our inner nose and are tempted to say, so sad. He whose service is pleasing to the Lord will be accepted, and his prayer will reach to the clouds. The prayer of the humble pierces the clouds. And prayer is that place in the end, the only place on earth, the place where heaven and earth meet, touch, greet, and overlap, encompass one another, the place where I and thou shape the conversation between us and God and one another, the place we can be vulnerable, alone with one another, with the things within and the things without. The prayer of the humble pierces the clouds. The place where we find our freedom at last. Freedom of the mask, freedom of all the things that we've achieved that we felt we had to achieve and wondered at the end of our life for whom we did it and why we worked so hard. Freedom to be who we really are in Christ. Free to be loved, free to love. Free to be embraced, free to be forgiven, free to be dressed in the Father's best robe, his ring on our finger, free to be taken into the Father's arms again and again at last and forever. Amen. Please stand.